Hello and welcome to this Lumen Bearer Apologetics Lecture by Anthony English on the topic, The Book of Revelation, Chapters 1, 2 and 3. This November 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Bearer's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Book of Revelation, also known as the Apocalypse, the Greek word apocalypsis means revelation. And uh, as we know, it's the last book in the Bible. It was uh, written, as far as we know, by St. John the Evangelist, who was, uh, well, tradition holds that he is the author of uh, uh, the, the fourth gospel. And, and the first and second and third letters of St. John and of course the book of Revelation itself. Now, for many of us, there's a bit of a problem with the book of Revelation because, because it's been hijacked. Most of us, if we have heard of, uh, if we have heard of it and are familiar with it, it's probably probably in the context of uh, the millennium, the thousand years reign of Christ and, and Satan being loose for a thousand years and is that literal or, or symbolic and when is it and is it, are these predictions are out to happen or are they predictions or are they about the past and, and so on. Now I'm not going to answer all of those uh, questions tonight, least of all am I going to tell you whether the uh, whether the world is going to end and when. I'm going to keep that to myself. <laughs> but, um, but at least if it does end, even while I'm talking, what better place to be, right? When, if the world should end, than to be sitting there listening to a talk on the Book of Revelation. So, what we're going to look at tonight, I thought I'd, I'd I didn't want to be not that I didn't want to be too brave, but I didn't want to expect you to be too brave, because maybe you're, you're courageous, maybe you're not. I'm usually not, and so um, I didn't want to embark on the whole, the whole book of Revelation. But it's really divided into two parts, and uh, the the two parts are are uh, the part one, which is what we're going to look at tonight, is only the first three chapters. There are 22 chapters in the in the book. We're only going to look at chapters 1, 2 and 3. All the drama starts from about chapter 4. Okay, and especially chapter 6 and then it all gets very spectacular and uh, and so I'm going to, I thought I'd just let you dip your toes in first by Revelation 1, 2, 3, that's what we're calling tonight's talk and then and then we'll see uh, who wants to come back for more. But that won't be tonight, if the world doesn't end, of course. So, part one is the letter is an introduction, and letters to the seven churches, the seven churches of uh, Asia, uh, Asia Minor, and uh, uh, the, there are so there are seven letters, seven warnings, um, and encouragements uh, to these seven churches. So, chapters one, two, and three is what we're going to look at tonight. The second part are the visions. Well, the first part part of a vision as well. But the second part is a vision, the eschatological vision, which is uh, means the 
the, regarding the end times, regarding where we are headed, where we are going to, what the goal that we are headed for. And that eschatological vision has got God in majesty, the unraveling of the seal, the unrolling of the seal, and uh, and then events prior to the final outcome where Christ opens the, the first six seals, the visions of the four horsemen, and uh, and then the trumpet calls and a scroll that is eaten and the two witnesses who are murdered in the city. And then... So that's chapters uh, 4 and 5, the introduction, and then 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, to the death of the two witnesses, and then from the rest, uh, from chapter 11 on, we have the, the trumpet call, the woman pursued by the dra- dragon for three times and half a time, uh, the beast rising out of the earth, we've all heard of the beast, the number 666, that's the other thing that everybody knows about the book of Revelation, who is that beast? So we don't know, but um, uh, we don't know for certain. But there are many speculations about who the beast is. But that's not for tonight. Uh, the hymn of the sacred, basically the second part of the, of the vision, of the events prior to the final outcome, and then we have the victory. And that is really the essence of the book of the message in the whole of Revelation, is in the whole of the book of Revelation. In fact, the whole of uh, the revelation is the power of Christ. Christ's power is victory over evil. And so, uh, and also bear in mind that it is inspired, the inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit as all scripture is inspired. And so, we can't uh, throw it away and say, look, I, I don't want to know about it. It's the message for us as well. So, uh, there's the seven bowls of plagues, the fall of Babylon, the great harlot and the beast, and then the great songs of victory in heaven. And the battle, the thousand-year reign of Christ, which we mentioned, the last judgment, and then a new world, a new Jerusalem. And the vision comes to an end. And finally, the prayer of the Spirit and the Bride. And they say, come, come to the banquet. Come to the heavenly banquet. Let me just ask you a question before we get on to chapter 1. Mm. What banquet? The Mass. Yeah, why do you say the Mass? Yeah, you're right. Why do you say that? Because um, Jesus is offered up. Yeah. Okay. The, the, in Mass we have Christ's offering. He's not sacrificed to him, but he is uh, his, the presentation of his sacrifice eternally presented to the Father. Now, it's the Spirit and the Bride say, come. Who's the Bride? Ephesians chapter 5, he didn't bring the Bible. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us who the bride is. The bride is the church. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Come to the wedding banquet. This is a wedding invitation. That's what this book is all about, the book of Revelation. So this is a wedding invitation. And uh, you you remember in the Gospel of Matthew, I think it is, where we have uh, a king had a wedding banquet for his son. And he invited... He invited people and then they didn't come and he invited others and they were all busy, they had things to do. And then he said, well, go out into the highways and the byways and just get anybody. Well, we, we usually miss the fact that that is a wedding banquet. Who is the king? God. 
who is who is the Son? It's Christ. It's God the Son. But it's a wedding banquet. Now Christ wasn't there. So how come there's a wedding banquet? The church. He's married to the church. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5. And this plan of this wedding invitation, you see, you, you came along to a, for a nice uh, scary talk tonight. You didn't come along to get a wedding invitation, but here it is. And, uh, and you weren't expecting, just like those people out in the highways and the byways weren't expecting to be invited. And of course, uh, that is a, a, a parable of the, of the Jews who were first invited and many rejected the call of uh, the call to, to come to recognize Christ as the Messiah. And so, that, uh, and so then the call was made to the Gentiles. We see all of that in the book of Revelation itself. In fact, the whole book itself has a structure which is very liturgical. And that's, it begins with an opening prayer with a, with a blessing, a reading, uh, and, and in fact a call to write this down and to read it out. And then we have the offering of the sacrifice culminating in the communion of the bride the bride is coming to the supper of the Lamb and the spirit of the bride extends this invitation to you come and that's how the whole Bible is is this invitation come, come Lord Jesus it's wonderful so you can think of it in, the, in terms of um, uh, it's a very liturgical book I mean all the books are, of the scripture are liturgical but this one is really there have been various uh, studies which have looked at how these correspond to the Mass. Now I can say, well, what an extraordinary coincidence. Isn't that just a, an amazing coincidence? If you were to start your church, you have no right to, but if you did, you go and start your own church, what do you do? How do you start a church? Well, you're probably going to pick up the Bible, you'll have some readings, you'll have a sermon, you might have some hymns, and you won't have Holy Communion. How, how, how is your liturgy supposed to look? Are you supposed to wear vestments? Are you supposed to have incense? Are you, do you have candles? Do you have uh, the bones of the saints, the relics of the saints under the altar? All of these things are in the book of Revelation. If you want to see what liturgy should look like, read the book of Revelation. Read the Apocalypse. So let's read it. Well, I've, I've said uh, somewhat daringly that this is going to be a guided reading. Now, I, I don't know how close I'm going to stick to the text, but that's my intention, is <laughs> to stick to the text. I'm going to avoid as far as I can, uh, which is probably not very far. I'm going to avoid uh, my own interpretation or any wild interpretations. So I'm just going to, to try and stick to the text itself, which begins... The revelation of Jesus Christ. That first word in, in, in Greek is apocalypse. Apocalypsis. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place. So the revelation comes from God to Christ to pass on to the servants of what must soon take place. Cast your mind back, you're now a first century Christian. When is soon? When's it all, all going to happen? 
you don't know. But you might well guess that it's going to happen in your own lifetime, because our Lord himself said, uh, some of this generation will not pass away until uh, we'll, we'll even see the, see the victory. I can't remember his exact words. But soon. Remember, to the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. We see that repeatedly. And so when we deal with the numbers in the book of Revelation, you see seven, the number of perfection, yes, that's true, but it's also the number of holiness. Well, holiness is perfection, supernatural perfection. And so, uh, and we see the six, which falls one short of the number of perfection. And the number of the beast, six, six, six. And he made it known, how did Jesus Christ make this known? By sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. So John is the witness. Now listen to this. Here's the first blessing that comes in the book of Revelation. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep to it, who keep what is written, for the time is near. So blessed... Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, which I'm doing right now. Blessed are those who hear. It's a blessing, a blessing for us, for us all. This is the first indication that this message is meant to be read aloud in assembly, in the church, in the liturgy. It is not you and the Bible and you'll get to heaven not by yourself, just you and the Bible on your own. And so, and so this begins with a blessing. In fact, um, the very first words of the Bible, the very first words that uh, God speaks to man are a blessing. And they're actually a blessing on the marriage. And God blessed them, Genesis 1.42, God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. The whole Bible begins with the blessing of marriage, Adam and Eve, and it ends with the blessing of marriage, of the new marriage, of the new Adam, to the church. It's wonderful, isn't it? Blessed is he who reads... We're only up to verse 3. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written therein. Not just enough to hear. It's not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And so John writes to the seven churches that are in Asia. Now, uh, the seven churches, the seven, as I said, is a number which stands for totality. He writes to the seven churches, that is to the one uh, and only church symbolised by these seven. These seven churches are representative of the church throughout the world. To the seven churches that are in Asia. And how does he begin? Grace to you and peace from whom? From him who is and who was and who is to come. Who is the grace and peace coming from? He who is and who was and who is to come. He who is. Yahweh. I am. This is a blessing from God, grace and peace from God. 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Who are the seven spirits? Well, it could refer to uh, seven, seven angels, it might be seven the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, the seven, sometimes called the sevenfold uh, spirit. From the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. Why is Christ called the firstborn of the dead? Yeah, that's right. Certainly, it refers to his resurrection. He's of the human race as well, which is the dead race through sin. Remember, death came through sin, and yet he is the firstborn to rise again and to lead the rest of us by union with him to, uh, to that everlasting resurrection. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That thing will come back again. We will see the martyrs uh, who have, who are those who are blessed, who have washed their sins away in the blood, washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And uh, do you remember the wedding banquet that we mentioned before, and the fellow who turned up who wasn't dressed in the, you know, he was calling up the street and he wasn't dressed in the right robe? You ever feel sorry for him? <laughs> and uh, and the, the the robe is he has snuck into heaven. He has. Well, he hasn't really got into heaven, but he, he is uh, like a false apostle. He's like a, a false Christian inside, inside the church who hasn't washed his, in, he hasn't washed his robe in the, in the blood of the Lamb. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. Once again, uh, a kingdom of priests. This is another thing that goes through the, the whole book of Revelation is what St. Peter says, that you are a royal priest of the holy nation, a people set apart. And priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, every eye will see him and everyone who pierced him. Where have you heard that before? They will look on him who may have pierced. Where did you hear that? In one of the Gospels. Come on. Does anybody go to Mass on Good Friday? Nobody does, because there's no Mass on Good Friday. But when you... Uh, when, what, they will look on him and they pierced. John chapter 19, remember? Our Lord is pierced in the side. Outflow. See, the blood flowed from his side in the sleep of death, just as Adam's, uh, Adam's side was... Um, uh, Eve was taken from the river of Adam, from his heart. Uh, so too the church was born of the bride, born of the side of Christ when he was pierced uh, in the death of the cross offering his very life for his bride and uh, and so they will look on him whom they have pierced, now that's actually from the book of Zechariah chapter 12 uh, verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication so that when they look on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Now, that's the reference that in the Gospel of John where it says he was, uh, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This was to fulfill the scripture. That's the scripture that it was to fulfill. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
And so uh, St. Bede comments, he who at his first coming came in a hidden way and in order to be judged by men will then come in a very open way, in a manifest way. And how does he manifest himself? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. What's he saying? I'm the first and the last, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And so when we proclaim on Holy Saturday night, when the priest puts the, when he gives a blessing on the candle, the Easter candle, blessed is the fire, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's saying, Christ is God. It's a proclamation of the divinity of Christ. So, that's the introduction to, uh, to the, the rest of the book of Revelation. And so, John says, I, John, this, he names himself here, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Let's just break it up. I, John, your brother. Why is John your brother? We're, we're brothers. John is, John is our brother because we have a common father. Chesterton makes a point somewhere where he says uh, it's amazing how many people always speak about the brotherhood of man, but they deny the fatherhood of God. You don't have a brother if you don't have a father. Well, even if your father has died. But, uh, I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance. I'm sharing with you the tribulation. We don't know if John was in exile on Patmos. Probably he was. But uh, I share with you the tribulation and the kingdom. Interesting. Interesting parallel, isn't it? I, sell, I share with you the sufferings and the kingdom and the patient endurance. You know in the, the letter to the Romans in chapter 8, it says, we will reign with him if we suffer with him. And so the glory of the book of Revelation is also by the way of the cross. And when Christ said, when I'm raised up, I will draw all things to myself. He leads us to the cross. But that's not the end of the story. There's no Good Friday without an Easter Sunday. So he was on the island of Pat, called Patmos on account of the word of God. Perhaps he was in exile there. And uh, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Once again, very significant. I'm going to have to stop saying that's significant because everything's significant in this. But I was in, in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now we don't know what that, uh, what that really means, that he was in the spirit. But it was obviously some sort of contemplation or some vision. On the Lord's day. Now the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, we read from in the Acts of the Apostles and in other places that the day of the Lord is the day that the church celebrated the resurrection, which was Sunday. The uh, Sabbath day was the seventh day, the day of rest, the Saturday, and then on the eighth day uh, there was the resurrection. If you get interested in this, the, some people divide the book of Revelation into seven different parts. And some divided into eight different parts, corresponding to the to the eight days. The eighth day being the day of the resurrection, the new 
uh, Day of the Kingdom. Now, um, I, I looked at both of those, and I, I, I don't, I can't really see uh, the natural division between seven parts or even between eight parts. But, um, but anyway, it's something interesting, and there may be, there may be a lot to it. I don't know. Now, the fact that this is a vision. In a genuinely prophetic vision, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, God elevates the prophet's mind to enable him to understand what God desires to tell him. So, the prophet is guided by God, not just not just straight dictation, God could leave a tape recorder. Anybody young enough not to know what a tape recorder is? And uh, God, God could have left a message like that. The book could have dropped out of the sky. That's not how God could have done it, but that's not how He did it. He elevates the mind and the powers of uh, of the prophet, of the one who is uh, writing down or, or speaking the prophecy, and uh, and elevates it so that the prophet's mind is able to understand what God wants to tell him. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And as far as I can see, that is the whole vision, was one vision. I was in Spirit on the Lord's day. Sometimes Hollywood will present this uh, in several different visions and so on, but uh, I can't see any evidence from having looked at it that there's more than one uh, more than one vision. So all of this vision took place on a Sunday. Sunday when you were out shopping and St. John the Apostle was contemplating the day of rest now it doesn't mean that you can't do any uh, work at all and it doesn't mean that you know you might have to do an emergency shop as well but um, but the idea is that the day is given as the day of the Lord the day of rest the day of con- the day of rest doesn't mean you lie in bed all day you go to, go to bed you go to mass on Saturday night just to get it out of the way and now we sleep for the rest of Sunday yeah? <laughs> Well, you might you might have reason that you have to do that, but uh, but the idea is that it's a uh, it's a day of uh, of rest and contemplation in so far as you are capable, and as long as you are still fulfilling your your other duties, your other genuine duties, and so on. John was in spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now there are a lot of very spectacular things that happen in the book of Revelation and things that just don't seem to fit our western scientific sort of categories and uh, I heard a priest uh, speaking on this a few months ago which generated my interest and he said he said uh, just he said big dazzled by the text Instead of trying to analyse it all, well, there's, there's so much in it, it's very, very rich, but be dazzled by it. I heard a voice behind me, a loud voice like a trumpet. So it was behind him, just note that. Saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. As far as I recall, that is the only command in the whole New Testament to write. The only command from God to write. He didn't tell the apostles to write a gospel. Or he didn't tell the evangelists to go and write the gospel. Well, it's not recorded anyway, if he did tell them. He said, go and teach. 
Now, how are they going to teach? Well, writing was a very good way. It was not the only way they taught. Write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches. The seven churches are named Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We're going to do an examination on that at the end, so make sure you. I hope you know them all. So, now remember the vision was from behind? I heard a voice behind me like a trumpet. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. It's interesting language, maybe that's just the translation, but I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Right? I saw seven golden lampstands, basically seven candles. I saw seven candles. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Well, we heard that. The son of man has not come to, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. And, uh, our Lord refers to himself as the son of man. Where's that from? Daniel chapter 7. We're going to flip back, back and forth a bit, but... Uh, at the end, some of you might like to come and uh, I'll show you now. Uh, here's, just have a look at some of the highlighting that I've done for my. So, just as, this is only from the book of Revelation. This is in the Old Testament. Highlighting of passages which corresponds to, uh, to, to ones, or even Ezekiel. I didn't highlight it because there were so many. And, uh, and there, there were um, so many passages in the book of Revelation which are fulfilled fulfillments of prophecies made in the Old Testament now let me read first from the book of Revelation and then I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 7 here's the book of Revelation remember in the midst of the lampstands the lampstands themselves um, remind us of the seven branched candlestick which used to be burned in the temple of Jerusalem and this mysterious figure just suddenly appears in the midst of the lampstands. He's heard the voice, he's turned around, he's seen the candles, and then, in the midst of it, he saw, he saw uh, the, uh, one like a son of man. Now what did this son of man look like? Clothed with a long robe, and with a golden girdle around his breast, he's wearing priestly garments, incidentally. With a, this is a cross and priest. Clothed with a long robe, with a golden girdle round his breast, his head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth issued a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's not gentle Jesus, it's and mild, is it? It's a... Let me... So just, I'll just mention some of those. The long robe, the golden girdle around his breast, his head and his hair white as wool and snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet were like burning bronze. This is one who is coming in majesty. And as we see later on, when we get to uh, a future talk, and we see that there is the lion. Who, who is worthy to open the scroll? The, the lion. The lion of Judah is worthy to open the... 
And then I turned, and there's no lion anymore, it's a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb as if slain. A murdered lamb. One that had been killed. And yet he is there victorious. You see, we see the weakness, but we see the strength that comes through the resurrection and through the power of God. His feet like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. His voice is like the sound of many waters and so on. So let me read from the uh, book of Daniel, chapter 7. I looked then because of the sound of the great words which the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was slain, its body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancients of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom and all peoples and nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. And, uh, and then uh, we see in uh, other parts, as I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came. And then the time came when the saints received the kingdom. And, uh, oh, here we are, this uh, oh yeah, I saw one, uh, this is uh, Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, just earlier on in the chapter. And as I looked, thrown, uh, there were a series of beasts appear to Daniel, and then as I looked, thrones were placed, thrones for the king, remember we see the royal priesthood as the theme constant throughout the book of Revelation. As I looked, thrones were placed, and one that was ancient of days took his seat. His raiment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, his wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousand served him, ten thousand before ten, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The book of Daniel, chapter 7. Now, what was John's reaction when he sees his Lord? Remember John was the one who, who lay on the breast of Christ at the Last Supper. <coughs> he was the one who, who really knew the love. He, he, he called himself the, 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 love, the beloved disciple. Well, every, every disciple is a beloved disciple, but he felt it so much. He felt it so closely. He had such intimacy with Christ. And then he sees this Son of Man, who is Christ, with his, uh, his eyes, his hair, the burnished bronze feet and so on. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I fell at his feet as though dead. In Luke chapter 22, I think it is, we see uh, the, um, uh, our Lord says, uh, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. In, uh, in in John um, sorry, it might, actually it might be in the Gospel of John I just can't recall that's right who, who are you looking for Jesus the Nazarene when, when he said it the first time second time when he said it the third time they fell on their faces you see he gave them a glimpse of his power and his glory well 
John has had more than a glimpse of Christ's power and his glory. You have had the transfiguration, and which he mentions in the uh, beginning of the first letter of St. John, what we have seen and touched from the beginning, what we've seen and touched with our own eyes and, uh, and touched with our own hands. I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I'm just reading a commentary here uh, that his long robe shows his priesthood. The golden girdle, his kingship. Uh, his white hair shows his eternity, from Daniel chapter 7. His eyes like a flame of fire symbolise his wisdom and his bronze feet his strength and stability. I'll tell you which commentary that is later. Now, I am, so, so John sees this vision, is terrified. He is struck with awe. He is, a, is truly awesome. He, he lets out this, this amazing sigh of deeper than any human words. And then Christ says to him, Fear not. Says to his friend, to his brother, to his priest, to his servant, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I die. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. I died, but now I'm alive. Who is this? Is it God the Father? No, God the Father didn't die. It's God the Son. Did God the Son die? He says yes. Yes. Yes, he did. <laughs> In his human nature, but he died. It's the person who dies. Um, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Keys, keys, keys. Come on, Catholics. Uh, where have you heard that before? Matthew chapter 16. Let's just look back here to Matthew chapter 16. John... Um, our, our Lord is asked um, So where have we heard about the keys? This this vision, this Son of Man claims to hold the keys of death and Hades. If you think about it, the gates of hell will not hold out against Remember in Matthew chapter 16, uh, who, who the men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. There's the first recorded uh, opinion poll. All the answers were wrong. And... But mind you, even though they were all wrong, that's who people say that, say that he is. Even though those answers were all wrong, what are they saying about Christ? Some say that you are Elijah. Others say that you are John the Baptist. Now how, with what great reverence that John the Baptist was held? Or one of the prophets? Or Jeremiah? Now, this is an Old Testament, Old Testament hall of fame. And say, well, whoever you are, this is who they're saying you are. 
Now, sure, their answers are wrong, but but they can see that there is something divine about you, some divine power that you have, some God-given power. But our Lord wants more. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, rock, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, that in itself is a parallel with Isaiah chapter 22. Because in Isaiah 22, we have uh, a steward called uh, Eliakim. Eliakim is not, um, he's not the... Uh, Eliakim uh, is, is not the, the king, but he has the authority. He's like the prime minister. He has the authority to act in the king's name. I will thrust you from your office and your station. You will be cast down. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim. I will clothe him with your robe, will bind him with your girdle on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, none shall shut. He's got the authority. He opens, it stays open. He shall shut, none shall open. He has the authority to open heaven. Now how do you get the authority to open heaven? Well, that comes through the forgiveness of sins. That's the sin shut the door of heaven, isn't it? So whoever has that whoever has those keys has the authority to open uh, the the, the gates of heaven and the gates of hell to stop even the gates of hell cannot prevail it's like uh, it's, it's like being, being given the authority to stop even the gates of hell from being effective to stop people getting to hell in the first place and so I have the keys of death and Hades now write what you see what's to take place as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand uh, and the seven golden lampstands, well, what are they? Well, he starts to explain the mystery. He says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Each of the churches has an angel. And, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And yet, we were thinking they were seven candles. They are, are representing the seven churches. So the, angel, so the angels of the seven churches may stand for the bishops in charge of them or else the guardian angels who watch over them. So now there, there are these messages to the seven churches. So we're end of chapter one. We have a break. Any, any comments, questions? Anthony, I have a question why he only mentions the keys and A's and death without mentioning like the keys of heaven or... Is that because they've already been given to be up as like the church company? Yeah, well, um, yeah, okay, so the question is, uh, why does he only mention the keys of, of death and Hades and not the keys of heaven? Well, the, the point is that um, Satan can't lock people 
in hell. I don't mean that hell is not eternal, but he can't lock those who've still got an opportunity to get to heaven. He can't lock them in. He can't force you to sin. He can't. And so, if you've got the keys of Hades, if you, if, imagine if, I, if you try and, try and secure your house. Okay? I shouldn't say your house because I'm pretending that your house is Hades. Well, okay? Let's say somebody else's house. Okay? Right? Your neighbour's house. So, let's say your neighbour tries to secure it. Somebody evil tries to secure his house. And the people who are trying to get into the house and to get the hostages out have got the keys. He's got no key to secure his house. That's the point. Is that in the end, you're going to be either in heaven or in hell. He's got the authority of people. He's got the authority to open. He's even got authority over Satan. Okay? Uh, Would it also be possible that because uh, the Mass and the liturgy is representing and he's given revelation in heaven, that's the reason why the keys were for hell? Because he's already in heaven? Yeah. Yes, that's a good point, is that um, the vision itself, actually the, the whole of the vision is in, is in heaven. I mean, there are battles, and there are battles on earth, but most of, most of the vision, it, it, it really starts in heaven, comes down to the muck of the earth, and then leads back up to heaven. And there is this sort of heaven flood, this uh, passing from, from earth back up to heaven, coming down and then and then showing really that the Lord of history, the Christ is the Lord of history, and that even in the mess that we are in, in whatever situation we're in on the earth today, uh, or throughout the whole, of, the whole of the ages, is that it is really being overseen by, is being watched over, guided, and led towards the eternal kingdom, in spite of everything. You see, we pray that things will just come to an end, that, uh, that all the suffering will stop and that uh, our, our suffering will go away, or whatever kind it is. But, um, but the, the message, well, particularly in the book of Revelation, is that God is working through that. As, um, uh, as the poet said, I think, in Dante, often thou art nearest when our voices fail. Anthony, the Jewish... Candle stand. How many candles is that for? Seven or more than seven? Uh, the Jewish um, menorah. It's the seven-branched one that's in Exodus chapter twenty-five. It's a seven-branched one. Yeah, it reminds us of the seven-branched candlestick, the menorah, which used to burn in the temple of Jerusalem, which is described in detail in Exodus twenty-five. And then, but here, John is addressing the seven churches, right? Yeah. So, therefore, that's a precursor of Christianity, isn't it? Oh, yes. Yeah, 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 that's right. The, the, the seven lampstand. The, the liturgy, well, in the book of Exodus, I mentioned chapter 25. In the book of Exodus, there is, and Leviticus, especially in Exodus, there is, um, there is amazing detail about the vestments, about the, uh, the the candles, and how what the gold should be made of for the altar. Everything. There's a beautiful plan of the Old Testament liturgy. Now, the New Testament liturgy doesn't throw that all away. Christ didn't throw that all away and say, "Well, we don't have that anymore." Now you've just got the Bible and read that, and that will be your liturgy. That's simply not a New Testament vision of the liturgy. 
the Old Testament sacrifices have been replaced because they foresaw, they foretold the New Testament sacrifice of Christ himself. So there is no new sacrifice other than sacrifices united with him. But we, we wouldn't offer animal sacrifices to, to God anymore. Uh, but all of that is foretelling the new liturgy, which we see in the, um, in the, uh, the, the Last Supper, which is an extremely liturgical uh, event. It is the fulfillment of the liturgy, is carrying out the liturgy, the, the old Jewish liturgy. And so what we see in the book of Revelation is many, uh, many references, hundreds of references, to Old Testament events which are fulfilled in the New. Well, we're at the end of chapter 1. Does anybody want to... Does anyone want to say anything? No? Okay, we're now up to chapters 2 and 3, which is the letters to the seven churches. Now, perhaps if you've heard this before, which you have, uh, you've probably, if you've heard the letters to the seven churches, you'll probably remember two things. One is the one about uh, you have forgotten your first love, you don't love me as you, as you did before. And the other one is uh, you're neither hot nor cold, therefore do I vomit thee out of my mouth. And you sort of say, well, it doesn't really, that's not the Jesus that I like. Well, the thing is that we, we need to read all of, all of these messages. They are so rich. It's so beautiful. I mean, you, sometimes it may look like God is just grumbling. He's never happy. But I'd say that that is a very false reading of the messages to the seven churches. Now remember, the seven churches, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I wish we could get back to our, our, uh, our original days of early Christianity when everybody was united and there weren't all these divisions and... and, and and everything was simple, there was no, no vestments and garments and all highfalutin liturgy and so on. It was all just all back to the, to the early days when we just had simple Christianity. Historically, it did not exist. And the unity at the start, once again, did not exist. Well, the unity existed, but the divisions, the attacks, you read the book of Revelation. One heresy after another, attacking here, attacking there. And John is writing to them to encourage them. Keep on. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is, um, is a, was a place of a great harbour, of great commercial importance. But it was also the centre of the cult of the goddess Diana. St. Paul spent three years preaching in Ephesus. We have the letter to the Ephesians, which we've mentioned before. And he had considerable success. It was the most important Christian city, especially after the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. And St. John, the Apostle, spent the last years of his life in Ephesus. Our Lady, as far as we know, tradition tells us that she, uh, she was assumed into heaven from Ephesus. So how important is Ephesus? To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not false apostles, and found them to be false. 
I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Okay. I put it to you that if you go home tonight, I, I, I think you'll find it extremely helpful, spiritually, to read each of the seven messages, not just the admonitions and the warning, but each of those messages in chapters 2 and 3 of the Apocalypse. Put together, you can highlight it, or you can cut, cut and paste it, whatever you want to do, but put together the introduction before each uh, message to each church, there is, our Lord says, I am the one who is the first and the last, or I am the one who holds the seven lampstands. I am the one who walks it. I am the one who does this. Who is writing? He announces himself. He describes himself. If we put all of those together, you get a beautiful vision of who Christ is. That's at the beginning of each message. At the end of each message, you also have the reward. The beautiful reward of those who are faithful, of those who repent. And you put those rewards together, you get a, a wonderful panorama of the kingdom of heaven. It's uh, we'll read through the messages, and then we might uh, we may get a chance to, uh, to to go back and do exactly that. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How come he knows it? Because our Lord knows our hearts. He can see what we're suffering. He knows even that hidden suffering that nobody else knows. Your toil and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and you found them to be false. His walking among the lampstands shows his loving care and vigilance for the churches. And you see, as you read through the uh, Apocalypse, you see that... He'll, he'll be seeing, John will be seeing a vision of, of the angel, and then all of a sudden he'll say, and then in the midst of them I saw one walking like the Son of Man. Or, and in the midst of them, then suddenly I saw the Lamb. Or in the midst, it was, it's just, you see our Lord's um, hidden, hidden Kevin. It's like but the lens is just coming into focus. It uh, shows his loving care and vigilance for the churches. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Okay, so they keep on keeping on, but they're obviously going through suffering. Remember, this is the centre of the goddess, of the cult of the goddess Diana. And uh, you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Isn't that so true? That we go through suffering, we think... I'm putting up with it, I'm tolerating it, I'm resigned to it, but as one saint said, resignation is not a generous word. And uh, we, we, we put up with it and I offer it up and that sort of thing. But he says, look, fall in love again. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. And this is what is going to push you on, it's going to spur you on. Not to focus only on your sufferings, and how hard but I'll put up with it. Life's going to end eventually. But to focus on the love. If you focus on your suffering, 
Well, it's, it's harder to love, isn't it? <laughs> you focus on the love, then you can suffer. It's so much easier, don't we know that, with penance. If we've got, got some penance to do, it's much easier if you've got a particular intention in mind. If you know that you've got somebody that you're going to pray for, you know that your friend is going through a great uh, temptation or a great trial of some kind or other. Or, you're, or that you are yourself. You've got something urgent that you're asking for or that you're making reparation for, then it's much easier to suffer. doesn't mean your suffering is not worth anything because well, you've got something to suffer for, but, but you do have something to suffer for. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Well, that's not the end of the story. Our Lord says, remember then from what you have fallen. Remember, you were so high here with your love. Your love can, you can lose your love. You can lose your charity. So much for once saved, always saved. Repent. He is saying this to those who have already been converted, who already loved him. He is saying repent. What does that tell us about once saved, always saved? Repent and do the works you did at first. Fall in love again. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Sobering thought. Yes, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What? Does Christ hate the Nicolaitans? No. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. Love the, love the sinner, the hate, hate the sin, but love the sinner. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that message was not just for Ephesus, but for all of the churches. Here's the reward. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Uh, the tree of life, as we know, uh, is a... Uh, uh, remember in the Garden of Eden, of course, uh, the t there was the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, and there's the, the, the tree, the tree of life. Of course, the cross itself is the tree of life. And uh, uh, to him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. That's a beautiful reward, beautiful blessing. You will eat from the eternal, the eternal banquet. You will have life forever the tree of life. We see later on in the book of Revelation, if they invite me back, that we see later on that there is a book of life that gets opened. That your names are written in heaven. And, uh, but it's not a fait accompli. Oh, well, I've been baptised. That'll do. No. Our Lord is warning even the, even the church of Ephesus, remember? Those great saints who were there in Ephesus. And he's warning that church. Straight after, in fact, even while John was still alive, he's warning them, you've lost your first love. Repent. There's hope for us yet too, eh? Now, the second one is, the, is to the church of Smyrna. And uh, one time, I remember the exact day actually, I gave a talk on St. Polycarp, who was the Bishop of Smyrna. And uh, St. Polycarp was a disciple of Ignatius of Antioch, from recollection. And uh, Ignatius of Antioch was a disciple of uh, St. John, St. John the Apostle. 
And the reason I remember the exact date, the 23rd of February, is that we had a baby due about that time and I sort of half hinted that if the baby was born on St. Polycarp's Day, <laughs> he or she would get the name. Yeah, well, anyway, she was, did come for another two weeks, so that was all right. She's safe. She got the name Mary instead. Now, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? This is the only one that is no, uh, has got no rebuke. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, Smyrna was renowned for its loyalty to Rome, to the Roman emperor, and its ritual worship of the emperor. Remember that emperors used to declare themselves divine? And, uh, would you vote for that? And they declared themselves divine, and, and they would, uh, and you had, had to burn incense to recognise, burn incense in honour of the emperor, to show that he's gone. And, um, and the, uh, and the emperor used to say that they were the first and the last. And so Christ himself says, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. There was, uh, during the French Revolution, there was a, um, uh, a, a kind of a natural religion that they tried to create, uh, uh, celebrating the brotherhood of man and so on. It wouldn't get past the... Uh, inclusive language these days, but uh, they tried to celebrate celebrate that and uh, and tried to get people to come along to these public feast days in honour of man, recognising the divinity of man and that sort of thing. And, uh, and it really didn't take off. And uh, somebody advised the founder of all of this and said, look, uh, I'll give you an idea. Well, what I suggest you do uh, is... I suggest that you prophesy something and then die, prophesy that you're going to rise again from the dead and then rise again from the dead and then people will listen to you. <laughs> so Christ is saying, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know your, your tribulation and your poverty in human terms, but you are rich in divine terms. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Once again, they're false apostles and they're false prophets and they're false Jews. And they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Not very ecumenical language, is it? But he was not condemning the true Jews, he was condemning the ones who were false. And the saintly bishop of uh, Polycarp of Smyrna was martyred because the Jews of that city incited the people to clamour for his death. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. What encouraging words from our Lord. Well, yeah, you are about to suffer, but do not fear what you are about to suffer. Well, if you're going to suffer it anyway, it's probably not that nice to be told we're about to suffer it, but... At least do not fear what you are about to suffer. They were in the midst of suffering anyway. So do not fear. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days. If you get a chance, look up Daniel chapter 1 and you'll see what that ten days means. But it doesn't mean ten days. You will have tribulation. It means it will come to an end. 
Okay, so there's no warning uh, about their behaviour. It just says, be faithful, do not fear. Be faithful unto death, here's the reward, and I will give you the crown of life. Uh, echoes of that once again in Revelation chapter 20. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. Now, um, that uh, idea of the of the second death is the death of uh, um, well, is the death of the soul. That's the second death. You will not be hit by the second death. There's the first death, there's the death of the body, of course. Pope John Paul II uh, reminded us uh, just a year after he was elected, no, actually only four months after he was elected Pope, back in 1979. It's easy to stay true to the faith for a day or for a few days. The difficult thing, but the important thing, is to do so right through life. It's easy to keep the faith when things are going well and difficult to do so when obstacles are met. Consistent behaviour which lasts one's whole life is the only kind which deserves to be called fidelity. Mm-hmm. And what a great example he, uh, he gave us in his own life of that. But this idea that it's easy to stay true to the faith for a day or for a few days. So this notion that we've got to keep on keeping on which is encouraging because we've all got suffering, we've all got some sort of trials and, uh, and they don't necessarily come in the way of uh, open persecution. It could come in the way of an ingrown toenail or, uh, <laughs> or somebody pulling in in front of you in the traffic or somebody really gets on their nerves or a nasty boss or uh, being short of money, whatever it might be. Anthony, can, can you clarify the difference? Yeah, just that comment about the, sec- the second death in um, uh, Revelation 2.11. The second death is a, re- a reference to irreversible, enduring condemnation. And uh, in chapter 20 and chapter 14, sorry, in chapter 20 and chapter 21, there's further reference to, to this second death. Okay? But this is Revelation 1, 2, 3, so we're not doing that tonight. But you'll get a chance at some stage. Now, um, so he who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. So there's the reward. So remember, with each church, what we're seeing is the introduction, the announcement of who he is, who the revelation is being made by, followed by the reward from being faithful. So the third one is to the angel of the church of Pergamon. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. In uh, Hebrews chapter 4, we have the Word of God is living and active. Living and active, it is um, sharper than a two-edged sword, than a double-edged sword. And uh, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, I don't know what your place is like, but uh, if you got told that I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, you're in the midst of persecution. You're in the midst of suffering. You haven't gone away and into an isolationist policy and just said, look, we're going to set up our own Christian commune and, and um, we'll be away from the evils of the world. Now, some people have called uh, to live a contemplative life and then close order or as, as hermits. It's a rare vocation, but some people are called to that. 
And they also have their attacks. They also have their difficulties and their temptations. Sometimes far greater than those of us who are out in the world. But um, the point is that uh, John is reminding, well our Lord is reminding through John, uh, to be faithful. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you. Remember St. Paul, when he went out in the Acts of the Apostles, we were, were told that uh, he had a few friends around and then, and then when he was accused, he said, there was not a single person to defend me. Not a single person backed me up. <laughs> that was just all silent. You did not deny my faith even in those days. Um, Smyrna was renowned for its um, for its temples, and it had a um, a temple to the divine Caesar Augustus. I know where Satan dwells, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. Basically, that's a reference to uh, the, the book of Numbers in chapter 25, where we see that um, Balaam and Balak, uh, uh, sorry, Balaam is uh, teaching um, Balak to, to uh, idolatry. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, their old friends. And uh, actually the emperors at the time insisted, they said the Roman emperors insisted on being acknowledged as Kyrios. There were so many challenges. There was not so much a lack of faith, it was credulity. People would believe anything. And, uh, and they were competing for gods. And including Roman emperors. I'm God. And, uh, and so they wanted to be acknowledged as Kyrios, Lord. You know, Kyrie, Lord have mercy which amounted to divine honours, and that implied a form of idolatry. And so uh, you also have among you some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, and the Nicolaitans were involved in pagan ritual banquets and sacred fornication rites. So uh, we're not the sort of people that you'd like to bring home to your mother. Now, our Lord, is, is it because if people are mixed up in this, and they're surrounded by this, they may be working alongside these people, they're friends of them, whatever, and they get affected. You do, you get affected. And, uh, and, and so our Lord wants them, repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Ah, I love this promise, I love this one. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, because remember they had these indulgent meals, these indulgent gorging themselves and, and uh, idolatrous meals and, and fornication and so on. And so this is a counter to the sin of the indulging in idolatrous meals. To him who conquers I will give some of the hidden manna. The manna we remember from John chapter 6 and from the book of Exodus. Uh, we have a manna in the, in the desert that was given to the Jews. Christ promised a new manna in John chapter 6. Uh, your fathers ate manna in the desert, but they're dead. I will give you, I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will uh, have life from him, and I will raise him up on the last day. He promised them a hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, which no one knows except him who receives it. What's the white stone? I'm going to tell you because I looked it up. 
There are two answers that I've come up with, and both of them are beauties. The first one is this. The white stone is a reference to the custom of showing a little stone with some appropriate mark on it to gain entrance to a feast or a banquet. Okay, it's your wedding invitation. You know, um, some people have like more and more spectacular wedding invitations and uh, like engraved in gold or something. It's just amazing some of the some of the wedding invitations that you receive. It could be that people recognise that this is a, a great event and a once a once in a lifetime event. Uh, but uh, you used to get a white stone. So next time you're getting married, you know, send out white stones in the mail and uh, with a little mark on it to gain entrance to a feast or a banquet. And so that's that's what. We don't. Well, we don't understand. Although now we do, now we do. But um, uh, what the people reading it at the time did understand, I will give them a white stone. So I'll give you an invitation, personalised. That's one answer. The other answer about the white stone is after somebody was free, was uh, a judge was decided that the person was not guilty, he gave him a white stone. Showed a white stone as a sign that he was not guilty. Like the judge hammering down and saying, "Not guilty." Okay, because Christ freed us from sin and death. How are we going for time? Okay, let's do it. All right. Uh, to the church of Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, we've seen that before. And his feet are like burnished bronze. Incidentally, Thyatira was uh, famous for its bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Wouldn't you love to hear those words from Christ himself? And that your latter works exceed the first. You've gone even further than you did at the start. You've grown in love. But I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching beguiling my servants to practice immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now we don't know if that's a single woman who was leading people into this idolatry thing or, or whether it was a kind of a metaphor, we don't know. I gave her time to, re- to repent, as he, as he does to us all, but she refused to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike her children dead. Bad company. Okay? Bad company corrupts the best of us. And, uh, and if you get influenced by it, I'm not saying that you shouldn't mix the It's good to mix with people so that you can help them, lead them closer to God, hopefully. But, um, but if you get infected, time to move away. Now, uh, and I will strike the children dead and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches mind and heart. Once again, who Christ is. Who searches mind and heart. He's claiming a divine authority here. And all the churches shall know that I'm, I, I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Now, the Kira of us has a little observation here that bad habits you see, they, they had their original love but then they fell away bit by bit and that's the way that we fall in sin. We fall away bit by bit. The Kira Bell says that bad habits become more and more difficult to shed. Every time we despise a grace, our Lord is going further away from us and we are growing weaker 
and the devil gets more control of us. And so he, he says, my conclusion is that the longer we remain in sin, the greater the risk we run of never being converted. So convert and don't delay. I will give to each of you as your worst deserve, but to the rest of you who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, people used to speak of this uh, hidden uh, Gnosticism, which was the deep things of God, they called it, and God calls it the deep things of Satan. To you I say, I do not lay upon you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. He who conquers and who keeps my voice until the end, here's the reward. I will give him power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. We'll, we'll see later on uh, in the book that uh, there is a ruler who rules the nations with a rod of iron, the child born in uh, Revelation chapter 12. As when earthen pots have broken to pieces, even as I myself have received power from my Father. Uh, reminiscences of Matthew chapter 28. Uh, verse 20, all things are given to me from my Father in heaven, all authority has been given on earth, in, in, in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and therefore I give to you. I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, uh, the church of Sardis was, um, uh, were probably, the Christians were infected also by the general atmosphere, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the name of being alive. People think that you are good and you are dead. Awake and strengthen what remains. There's still some remnant there. There's still some little uh, inkling of grace. God is still inviting us. Awake and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep that and repent. Keep the faith that you have received and heard. So much for this idea that the early Christians had this beautiful unity and peace and quiet. Completely false. If you will not awake, I will come like a thief. Because we're never ready uh, if, if we're in sin. And you will not know what hour I will come upon you. But you still have a few names in Sardis. You know the names that are written in heaven. People who have not soiled their garments. That uh, metaphor again of the garments being soiled and the, by sin and the garments being washed uh, in the blood of the Lamb. It's regret. Uh, and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who conquers shall be clad in white garments. And that's a reference also to um, Exodus 32. It's uh, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Better than that, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, we're on to the last two churches. Uh, the last two warnings. So we're only up to, there's only three out of the 22 chapters, and this is not even the exciting bit. It's good, isn't it, eh? And... Uh, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, not the one in the United States, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens. And uh, I know your works, once again. Our Lord knows us. He knows us through and through. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I stand at the door and knock. That's actually from the book of Revelation. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word. 
and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, that, uh, that expression again, who say they are Jews and are not, but they lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet and learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word of patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial which is coming on the whole world. Okay, here's the promise. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. There is a danger that someone may seize your crown. Our good friend David Obede I pointed this out, this particular uh, passage out to him. I said, well, what do the Protestants who believe in one saved, always saved, say about that? They're saying you're going to lose your crown. He says, well, they say that, yeah, what that means is that there are some people who are going to be walking around in heaven with, with no crowns on their head and others will be walking around with this. <laughs> you're kidding. He who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Isn't that wonderful? He'll be a, a pillar in the temple. Remember, the whole of the book of Revelation is also a vision of the temple. Culminating in the centre when the Holy of Holies, which we see uh, when uh, the Ark of the Covenant is revealed in chapter 12. It's the whole vision of the temple. And anyway, if you go into it, you can see the, the design of the Old Testament temple, and this also follows. He is increasingly getting closer and closer to the Holy of Holies as, as uh, the book of Revelation comes along. It's just wonderful. It is just the most fantastic. In fact, fantastic is not the right word because it's not fantasy. It's real. It's marvellous. But you have kept... Uh, sorry, I'm coming soon so that no one may seize your crown. He who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out. You're not going to lose heaven once you've got it. I will write on him the name once you've got it. I will write on him the name of my God. Your names are written in heaven. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. That's a lot of names. There is a door in heaven with your name written on it. Mind you, St. Teresa of Avila was shown a vision of her place in hell that Satan had reserved for her. I don't know, whichever one is, you find more helpful. But um, <laughs> <laughs> he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we're up to the very last one, the, to, the, uh, to the church of Laodicea. And there, was, there were hot, hot springs close to the city. And uh, for healing purposes, I suppose, they claim. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, we're on to Revelation 3, verse 14. Right, the words of the Amen. The words of the Amen. That's, Christ says, I am the Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through Him all things are made. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. Choose whatever translation you like. I will spit you out of my mouth, spew you, vomit you out of my mouth. Now, you might say, well, does God really want us to be cold? Well, no. I mean, not cold towards him, but, but 
the point is that sometimes God allows us, if you're allowed to Peter, to fall into sin, to the shame of sin, so that he would bounce back. So he recognized his weakness and bounce back and entrust uh, himself to the grace of God. And so if we're mediocre, that, um, that's a big, great danger in the spiritual life, that we just plateau along. We get comfortable. Would that you were cold or hot, so because you were lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, like the man in the parable, um, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Therefore, if you want gold, you want riches, here's where you get it. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. He's speaking especially of the gold of suffering, I suppose. Uh, this was a very big um, textile city as well, uh, Laodicea. That you may be rich and white garments to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen, the garments of grace. And salve uh, ointment to anoint your eyes that you may see. Very sacramental, this book, by the way. Very sacramental. Because we're body and soul. We're not just pure spirits. Those whom I love are reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. Oh, here's God being tough again on us. He's going to, he's going to reprove us. And if, if your parents didn't love you, they would never correct you. That's true, isn't it? What, what do we say when we see a kid who's allowed to do everything that he ever wants? We say he's spoiled. It does spoil him. It wrecks him. Destroys him. Doesn't prepare him for life at all. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't love your children. It's because you love your children. Now, those in my love I reprove and chasten, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That promise in the, the Gospel of John, in that beautiful passage from John 14 to 17, following the Last Supper, where our Lord says, uh, he, and where he says, uh, if anyone loves me, my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode in him. He who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. You're kings. You're royal. As I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, we have to finish it off at this, uh, at this point uh, because you all need to go home and get your sleep. But uh, there's more to come. Not tonight, but there is more, as you can see. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I'll just leave at this thought that Abby, you may have heard of the Saint Therese of Lisieux's home in uh, France, uh, just uh, to the west of uh, Paris, uh, Lisieux, a couple of hours in the train, and, um, and there's, a, there's a painting there of our Lord. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And there's no doorknob on his side of the door. And that's uh, our Lord's invitation. He's constantly inviting and uh, rewarding as well, and promising. So it's a very beautiful book. I encourage you to read it, to read the book especially, especially rather than 
all the commentaries on it. The commentary that I've been using, which is a very subtle one, it doesn't, it's not a dramatic one, is the Navarre uh, Bible commentary from the Navarre University in Spain. And um, I have also drawn a little bit uh, in this very early part on um, uh, Scott Hahn's book, The Lamb's Supper, uh, which I, it's a very interesting and worthwhile book reading, although um, there are, I, I do have some uh, questions about some of the comments that he makes or some of the parallels that he draws. And in fact, I think he has probably also revised himself uh, uh, some of the things that he teaches earlier on in this. But nevertheless, it's, it's, it's certainly worth uh, reading because it shows you the, the heavenly liturgy in the book of Revelation. So we'd better finish off there because um, I'm afraid that my ten minutes has been a fairly biblical ten. <laughs> You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Anthony Miss. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.